Hey, welcome to the iFixed Podcast. My name is Mike Yimhenna. On today's episode, we speak with Linda K. Jacobs, who's written two seminal books about the history of Syrian immigration between 1880 to 1900. This focuses on what is called the Syrian colony in New York City, specifically in the West Village in Manhattan. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. This was a lot of fun. You should know that the full uncut version of this interview is on our YouTube page. So go to YouTube, subscribe, hit the bell, like, comment, all that good stuff. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome, everyone. My name is Mikey Mpenna. I'll be the host of today's uh, interview. I will um, welcome our special guest. Linda K. Jacobs holds a PhD in Near Eastern Archaeology and Anthropology and spent many years working on archaeological excavations and economic development projects in the Middle East. Dr. Jacobs is committed to promoting Middle Eastern culture and knowledge in the United States, founding Kalima Press in 2011, and sitting on the board of several Middle Eastern organizations, including the Near East Foundation, uh, the Moyes Khairallah Center, and all four of her grandparents were members of the New York Syrian colony. Linda is author of two books published by Kalima Press and is at work on a study of all Syrian colonies in the United States. Actually, three books, excuse me. And we are honored to have you be a part of this conversation. Welcome, Linda. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mikey. It's great to be here. It is an honor to have you. So as I mentioned, um, you, you've published three books. We're going to be focusing on two of them, um, Strangers No More and Strangers in the West, both of which focus on the quote unquote Syrian colony in the United States. And I'd love to, before we sort of jump right into that, I want to talk about this first book that focuses on the Syrian colony in New York which was in a very specific part in New York in what we could call little Syria in the lower west side. Right. I'm curious, growing up, having these four grandparents who are part of this colony, what was your relationship to the lower west side or the Syrian colony, little Syria? Well, you've hit a really, really important and kind of a sore point in the historiography of, of the New York colony because having four grandparents who were part of this colony on the Lower West Side, I knew nothing, nothing, nothing about it. They never talked about it. They never mentioned it. They, I knew, I didn't know that there was a colony in Manhattan. And in fact, the only colony I knew about was the Brooklyn colony, which everyone called Little Syria. And it wasn't until long after my grandmother died that I remembered something that she had told me when she was quite old. She told me that she traveled from Brooklyn to Manhattan for two reasons. One, to roll cigarettes in a Syrian cigarette factory. And the second reason she went was to have an abortion because she had gotten pregnant by her husband too quickly after her first two children were born. And she was afraid that she would not be able to take care of the new child. And so she went to the Lower West Side where the midwife lived, the Syrian midwife, to have an abortion. And it didn't strike me at the time because I had no context for thinking about the Lower West Side as being a place where the Syrians were living. But when I began to research it, I realized putting the dates together and putting the presence of the midwives and where they were living at the time, realized that she had gone to see the Orthodox midwife who was still on the Lower West Side in order to have 
the abortion. And that was those were the only two hints that I had from my grandmother about the Lower West Side Colony and the presence of the Syrians there in the 19th and early 20th century. Otherwise, my parents, for example, who were born in Brooklyn, only talked about Brooklyn and the Syrian presence, the Syrian-Lebanese presence in Brooklyn. So it was a complete mystery to me. And the reason I wrote the book is because no one knew about it. So I want to talk about this word colony, because for me, it, like it's a striking word. Did they think of themselves as a colony? This is a colony? Or is this a word that we use it, sort of retrospectively, there's the most apt word that you could use to describe this community. It's not a you're not you're not saying the Syrian community or the Syrian neighborhood. Um, because it's what the American newspapers called it. They called it either the Syrian quarter or the Syrian colony. It was not exclusively Syrian. There were many, many Irish. There were many German. There were Slavs. There were Scandinavians. It was a very multicultural part of town, even in the 19th century when the Syrians were numerous, but the, but American newspapers called it the Syrian colony and the Syrians did as well occasionally. But I think that they took that from this outside view of themselves as a colony or as, you know, and they were clustered. This is um, actually, I would say this is my map and mm -hmm. this high black lines. And I would say that it's even a little bit smaller than what I had written at the time that I thought at the time. And I think it was um, even a little bit more condensed. So if you think of, uh, let's say 900 people living in three blocks, within three blocks of each other on Washington Street, it was extremely and in intensely occupied. If you walk down there, you saw uh, signs in Arabic, you saw menus in Arabic, you heard people on the street speaking Arabic, and there were still people, you can't see it in this picture, but there are other pictures, there were still men who were wearing a fez. So the dates on the title of the book are 1880 to 1900, and that's this sort of deep, intense wave of, of migration. But as I was reading, I realized that there was this fact about American history that I didn't know about. And um, that is sort of this roadblock or this um, pothole in your research that you had to sort of um, dodge, that the 1890 census federally was burned. That's Somehow right. there's no 1890 census. First, I started with the 1900 census, which does exist. And it, the 1900 census was the first census in which the term Syrian was used as opposed to Turkey in Asia or Turkey in Europe, which is what had been used before. So first I looked up every name and I found every name in the 1900 census in all of those categories. And then I did a search for them in every resource that was possible. For example, on Ancestry, you could look at city directories. On Fold3, you could look at military records. On Family Search, you could look at birth certificates. And I happened to live in New York, so I was at the municipal archives every single day. And from those, of course, there were always there was always a witness for naturalization for merit. And so those people would be would be added to the database. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to talk about this unbelievable family. Okay, so this photo, um, for those of you who can't see the screen. Uh, in English, written at the bottom of this photo, in cursive, beautifully, it says, 
the first and only Syrian family in the United States, in the U.S. Who are the, <laughs> who are the Arbilis and um, why are they branding themselves <laughs> the first, <laughs> the first, um, the first Syrian family in the United States? Because they were. Actually, they were telling the truth. This is the Arbili family. They were born, um, Yusuf Arbili and his wife, Mary Durrani, were born in um, out, just outside of Damascus. And they left in 1860 when all of that conflict was going on with the Druze. And they went to Beirut and spent 18 years in Beirut. Yusuf Arbili helped to what they call vocalize the Arabic Bible and vocalize means to add the vowels mm -hmm. into the Arabic script. And um, he was a teacher at the Orthodox um, Girls College. He ran an Orthodox school in a in a small town. He was one of the intellectual kind of Western affiliated elite. And his two two of his sons went to what was then called Syrian Protestant College which is now called American University of Beirut. They belong to one of the elite Masonic lodges in Beirut as well, called Lulibon Lodge. And they came to the United States after trying to go other places. They tried to go to Russia. They tried to go to a couple of other places and they ended up getting letters of recommendation and possibly a job um, in the United States. And so they traveled in 1878 to New York. And Yusuf, the father, got a job teaching Arabic at Merrillville College, which was a Presbyterian college in Merrillville, Tennessee. Abraham, the oldest um, boy who's in this picture if, um, on the upper left, standing, set up a practice in Texas uh, where he went to find a better environment uh, to live in. They didn't really like Tennessee. They thought it was a little bit too small town. Sorry to interrupt, but why did they leave New York to begin with? They had, um, Yusuf had a job in Maryville. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. He had a job at the university or some. Yeah. And yeah. the Crawfords, who, who were founders of the college, um, had had a connection to some of the uh, Presbyterian missionaries in Beirut. And so they got, they read these letters of recommendations and hired Yusuf on the basis of these letters that Yusuf had gotten from the Presbyterian missionaries. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Aside from them being the first, they're also unbelievably accomplished. So they start, they start what I think is the first Arabic language newspaper uh, in the United States. They're also highly, highly educated. They're performers. They go all over, all over the place. They're doctors and lawyers and dentists. And so I guess my question to you, as I sort of go through these slides, did the colony in New York revere the Arbilis? Did they have a relationship with the actual community in New York? Were they sort of celebrities among the community? Or is this just something that we think about retrospectively? But no, they weren't revered. Um, they were caught up in the sect. They were orthodox. They were caught up in the sectarian battles. Their newspaper um, which was founded by the oldest son, Abraham, and the fourth son, Najib um, Arbili. And Najib ran the day-to-day -day operations because Abraham was a, um, a doctor and he lived mostly in Washington, D.C. And Najib started out, the newspaper started out as pe being kind of non-sectarian. It was the only Arabic newspaper in the New World. And so they talked about 
non-sectarian things. They talked about orthodoxy. They talked about the Maronite church. They talked about um, people having meetings and they didn't care who they talked about. They wanted people to know about the Syrian colony. But in about 1894, there were other newspapers that were started to be published and each had a sectarian slant. And so Kaukab became more and more orthodox and Najib especially became more and more um, strident in his orthodoxy. And so he, he, was not a, he was not a friend to many of the people of the colony and the colonists, many of the colonists, especially the Maronites, didn't like him very much. So there were these battles, these internecine battles that went on that culminated in 1906 with the murder of a Maronite man in the colony by what they thought were two orthodox men. And there was a huge, huge trial that went on for months and months and months. And it was a farce because no one spoke English. The interpreters were not very good in English and they couldn't explain the concepts to the, the judge or the lawyers. The lawyers couldn't talk anything but English. And the men were acquitted because there, there was just too much uh, chaos and they never found who did it, but it was kind of the boiling point of yeah. these menacing conflicts in the colony. So let's talk about this term that, that you use um, in the book, this idea of sort of social geography, and, yeah. which is what, what you're, I think what you're attempting to do um, in the first book. Okay, um, I'm gonna work my way backwards, come yeah. to this in a minute. Um, their lives were horrible. The, they lived in these converted, they were from the first quarter of the 19th century, they had been beautiful townhouses for the wealthy of Manhattan. And they abandoned them in the 1840s and 1850s. German and Irish immigrants came in and these townhouses were converted to tenements. So they were about 20 feet wide maybe 140 feet deep that had, that had been meant for a single family with um, possibly uh, servants quarters on the in the attic, federal style townhouses that were broken up into these tiny, tiny rooms with no light, no windows, no ventilation, no indoor plumbing, no nothing. And this is a this is from actually a little bit later the picture on the upper left from 1914 of a hallway sink with cold water the only plumbing that was installed in the first decade of the 20th century the tuberculosis was rampant in these communities the child mortality rate was extremely high is are these things that were only true of the, the Lower West Side colony? Is it was also true in Brooklyn? Or this is just what city life was like for poor immigrants? It was what all of the ghettos, all of the slums were like in New York in the 19th century and the early 20th century. And just to give us some numbers, between 1880, so the RBD show up, family number one, by 1900, and was 1900 the peak for the Lower West Side? Uh, no, because there were, until the First World War, they kept coming and they were coming in bigger numbers after 1900. 1900 is just my cutoff date. So in 1900, uh, there were 
you know, between, it's really hard to say again, but there were about 1,500 or 1,600 people of whom a quarter were in Brooklyn and the rest were in the, on the Lower West Side. There were a couple of outliers in Staten Island, a few in Harlem, but basically in those two communities in Brooklyn and in, and in the Lower Manhattan. Let's talk about the term Syrian, actually. There's maybe a good time to talk about that. After 1923, at least in Lebanon, a lot of people started thinking about this idea of greater Lebanon and not Bilal Shem. So uh, were immigrants from what is now modern-day Lebanon after the 20s also considered within that 100-person uh, quota? Yes, they were still called Syrians um, by, the, by the Immigration Service, and they were still called Syrians by, the, by Congress. So yeah, they were, they, that was um, a unit, so 100 total. So maybe we can talk a little bit about the, uh, the economics um, for the sort of economic nature of the, the community. Because when I think of Arab immigrants and Syrian immigrants uh, in the Arab world, there is this idea of uh, the prosperous peddler, the prosperous business uh, person. And on the screen we have right now is the original Sahadi's uh, grocery store, which anyone who's familiar with New York and definitely in particular familiar with Brooklyn, knows is very is very familiar with uh the famous Hadi's restaurant uh grocery store on atlantic avenue now um but what did these immigrants do those that were actually in um in new york they started out as peddlers men and women were peddlers they peddled two kinds of goods which were defined by the syrians themselves and they were and they were shorthandedly defined by the kind of thing that they carried them in. So the Keshahi peddlers were the notions peddlers. They carried their notions. Do people know what notions are? No, if you could tell us what notions are, that'd be great. Yeah, there are things that don't fit in other categories. So they're needle and thread, little pairs of scissors, shoelaces. My mother used to say about her father that, she, that he was a shoelace peddler. Anything that didn't really fit into other categories of things. That's what notions are. And they're always small, they're always cheap, and they're fairly light to carry. Although it, people said that, they, that the box often uh, weighed 40 pounds. And then the other kind of peddler was the peddler of fancy goods or oriental goods or Turkish goods, as they were called. And Turkish goods were what you can imagine, embroideries, holy land goods like rosaries, olive wood boxes, supposedly from the Mount of Olives in Palestine, that kind of thing. So they were peddlers first. Then they became suppliers of peddlers. And so that they would set up a warehouse and a store and they would supply other peddlers with, with goods. I'm curious about, um about their entryway into sort of like upper society and the political and business uh, class. Um, did that, that sort of wave of immigrants um, look at, aspire to enter, enter the political class? Um, for, the, for the most part, as far as I know, no. I know some examples. I mean, I'm writing... Um, about a group of men in the New York colony who worked together, and I won't uh, give away my fire by telling you the plot, but one of them uh, ran for state senate in Brooklyn mm -hmm. twice, and 
the newspapers uh, presented it as a kind of, as he was like a dark horse. The Democratic Party wanted someone, I mean, excuse me, the Republican Party wanted a candidate to run in a solidly Democratic district. And they convinced this, you know, almost fresh off the boat. I mean, he wasn't fresh off the boat. He'd had many businesses. He'd been there for 20 years already when he ran. But somehow they convinced him to run and he lost decisively both times he ran. But he was active in um, local Brooklyn politics. But there weren't very many um, people who aspired to American politics. You had to wait for the next generation or even my generation, the third generation. So that. can we talk a little bit about this, uh, this delightful story about the Ar Arbili who gets um, nominated for council um, or the consulate? Um, yeah, tell us a little bit about who this character is and yeah. what happens. <laughs> so this is Najib Arbili, the same man who started the newspaper. Okay. And he had a law degree from the University of uh, from Maryville College. And in those days, you didn't have to go to law school. You could get a law degree um, just by going to undergraduate school, which is what he did. He was said to speak 16 languages. He wrote very well. He wrote beautiful English. Um, he came when he was nine years old, so he had most of his schooling in the United States. He decided that he wanted to be the consul, a consul in a Middle Eastern country. He orchestrated his nomination to be consul. First, he tried to be consul to Egypt, but the president named someone else to be consul before he got his foot in the door. But in 1885, he moved to Washington, DC. This is the amazing part. Before his older brother, Abraham moved there, he moved there by himself. He stayed in a hotel. He gave performances, orientalist performances so he could make himself known. He got, as he called it, the entire Tennessee delegation to write him letters of recommendation. And he indeed got the nomination from Congress and from the president of the United States to be consul to Jerusalem. And it was announced in every newspaper in the United States that he had been elected to this post. Then he went to Jerusalem and he found out that the Ottoman government would not recognize his American citizenship and would not accept him as the con American consul to Jerusalem. And this battle was fought at the highest levels of the American government and the Ottoman government, trying to say that Arbili was a legitimate American citizen, he had done as a naturalization, and that he should be accredited in Jerusalem. But the Ottoman government refused to budge because they considered him still an Ottoman citizen. So this brings up for those uh, for those who are dual passport holders, they get to Beirut. They land at the port in Beirut. Are they still Ottoman passport holders in the 1880s? Did passports exist? Were they stamping different different uh, documents, or did they have to rescind or sort of? There were no Ottoman passports. 
They never came with an Ottoman passport. So there was no actual document. But no, they they didn't recognize their American citizenship. And I tell this story, and we were talking about it before, about my grandfather and grandmother, my maternal grandfather and grandmother, who went to Syria in 1914. And of course, 1914 is the just the beginnings of the First World War. And um, the uh, Christians in Lebanon lost their exemption from the military. And so my grandfather was, was panicked because he was afraid he was going to be drafted into the Ottoman military. He ran from his village, which was Merjayun, down to Beirut to get a paper from the American consul saying that he was an American citizen. It would not have helped him. If he had been drafted, he would have been considered an Ottoman. But he ran back to Merjayun. They ran to the next village, and then they came back to the United States, evading what he thought was an imminent threat. That's a fantastic story. OK, I'm going to keep on going. I'm going to do our little quick Q&A and then open it up to the questions in the chat. So what are you reading or watching right now, if anything? I'm reading a lot of books about the Sephardic Jews in New York and also about what it meant to be Ottoman and what it meant to be an Ottoman Jew. Could you name one just as a recommendation? I have one on my table right here called yeah. Turkish Migration to the United States from Ottoman Times to the Present. Quite fantastic. Fantastic. So. Okay, great. Second question, who would you love to shadow for a day past or present? Uh, see, I would like to shadow one of the women that I've that I've profiled in the 19th century and early 20th century. They were fascinating. And there's not I know a lot about them. I know really a lot about them. And um, and yet not enough. OK, we're going to open it up. OK, so I'm going to ask you to unmute one by one. Daniel. Hi. Yeah, really, really enjoying the talk. I just wanted to ask. I put it in the chat. Often the community is sort of contained to Syrian and Lebanese national kind of frameworks. Um, and I'd say Palestinian residents are sort of obscured. Um, mm -hmm. I, know, I know proportionally the numbers were low, but do you know anything more of an early Palestinian community in New York? So, um, yeah, I'm really interested in early Palestinians in the United States. And I wrote a paper actually about the Palestinian presence at the 1876 uh, Philadelphia Centennial Fair. And because of writing that paper, I've been kind of trying to find Palestinians in the early records. It's quite hard. I mean, you know, sometimes the census takers and people would recognize. So I have a guy that I'm writing about today whose name is Musa Talamas. He's probably Syrian, but he's from Bethlehem. And so what do you call those people? You know, you don't know whether he's a Catholic from Bethlehem or a Maronite Syrian who moved to Bethlehem. It's very hard to know. He's listed in the census as a, as a person from Bethlehem. So one can look for those people. But there are a lot of people who were called Syrians who might have been from Palestine, but who called themselves Syrians or were called Syrians by the census takers. And it's really, really hard in the 19th century in particular. Um, but up until 67, it's really, really hard, I think, to get it to get at the Palestinian, early Palestinian presence in the United States. I'm I'm still trying, but I'm I'm not there yet. 
Okay, great, great question. Bob asked me to ask his question on his behalf. So can you speak about the cultural and literary production slash innovation that came out of the Syrian quarter of New York, Gibran et al? Yeah, so, you know, there were a half dozen newspapers that were active in the 19th century and another 50 to 60 Arabic newspapers in the early 20th century. Also out of that literary beginning, that, that news beginning, there were poems published in all of those newspapers, people like Khalil Gibran, Amin Rehani, Al-Dumasi Haddad, Ilya Abu Mahdi, all of these people had their starts in the newspaper world. And uh, I'm sure everyone knows this, that Afifa Karam, who didn't live in New York, but published her first novel in Arabic in New York in 1904, out of that came the, the Penn League, the uh, Rabital Kalamia, which started in 1916 and then was reformulated in 1920, which was a group of eight or possibly 10 men, all men, who published uh, among them Khalil Gibran, Ilya Bumadi, Amin Rihani, Al-Dumisi Haddad, many people like that, who published many of the most famous works of, that, of that, those writers in New York. Okay, Linda, this was an absolute pleasure to have you on. Um, I feel like I could, I could talk to you for another couple hours about this. I would so, be happy anytime. Yeah, maybe we'll have you back to, to extend the conversation at some point. For those of you who are interested in um, finding the books, diving into a bunch of the articles, learning more about this, there's a ton on the Kalima Press website. Um, I highly recommend that you do a Google deep dive into this stuff. There's so much, uh, so much out there. Thanks, everybody. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. It's great. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to watch the full uncut version, go to youtube.com slash afikra. There you can see the full video versions of these podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, go to afikra.com where you can learn about our Zoom events, our live events in 30 different chapters around the world, our social media presence, and our podcasts and YouTube stuff. You should know that everything we do is all towards a mission of converting passive interest in the histories and cultures of the Arab world into an active intellectual curiosity. By listening to this, you're a part of that movement, so thank you for being here. If you'd like to support our work, go to afikra.com support and join the hundreds of people around the world who make this work possible. Thanks. <laughs>